Okay. Um, a new campaign that we started last week is called The Irresistible Gospel. Before we get into it today, would you guys join with me in a word of prayer again to just pray God's blessing as we open his word. Father, Lord, we just ask that as we, as we open your word, as we read scripture and find your truth in scripture, Lord, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, that you, Spirit of God, would speak to us in what you're calling us to. Lord, to love your gospel more, to find in you, Lord, in this story that you are writing throughout all of history, just your love, your mercy, your grace, and to encounter peace with you, and Jesus, most of all, to just encounter you, because you are awesome, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, Greg, I see you wearing your Packers gear. I got a... Uh, I think second service last week, I made a joke about how the Bears were going to win, and I'm eating a lot of crow this week. So uh, they say pride comes before a fall. That was a pretty big fall, right? Bears stink again. It's depressing. <laughs> All right. Our new campaign that we started last week is called The Irresistible Gospel. This campaign, I'm not particularly trying to argue for the truth of the gospel logically or theoretically. Instead, all I'm trying to just bring out from God's word is that this story is so awesome. Uh, it's God's history, God's story that he's writing currently that he had, has written in scripture and in the past. And it's just so beautiful. It's so awesome. So my whole point is to just reveal that this is a story that is so irresistible, it's so desirable, that whether you're a Christian or not, you should want this story to be true because it's just so good and it's just so awesome. All right, so we're not arguing for the truth of it based on these things, but we are approaching it from a more philosophical perspective that all of us have, to have ways of interpreting the world. Right? To interpret the events that are happening around us, to interpret our life, what it all means. And to do so, we have to answer these four big questions. Everybody, I think, has answers to these, even if they're fuzzy. Um, some of us are working them out again, or going back and reworking them. That happens, too. But we have to have answers to these questions to be settled. And in the gospel, we find not only answers to these questions that are true, that appeal to our experiences and the reality that we encounter every day, but they're also so compelling and so, so good. So origin, where did it all come from? Meaning, why do we exist? What's the meaning of life? Morality, how ought we live? And destiny, where is it all headed? We have to have answers to these big questions in order to be settled in life, and the gospel answers them in a true and compelling manner. Our conclusions from last week when we started this, last week was the, the bummer <laughs> on morality. Uh, and, and again, if you missed last week, the logical place to begin would be in origin, um, but we have a guest speaker next week and she picked origin, so I got morality. Um, <laughs> our conclusions from last week that launch us into our topic for today, there is a moral law and a moral lawgiver. Okay, we all intrinsically know this to be true. Uh, we deceive ourselves into believing that it's not and try to wrestle with it. Um, so I, I didn't try to prove that there's a moral law giver or bring it to God at that point. But once you start, once you come to the conclusion that there is a moral law, the dominoes logically start falling to eventually come to God, right? And it's, it's pretty compelling and it kind of, we kind of just 
get there logically pretty quickly. Read Mere Christianity, you'll see how C.S. Lewis does it and makes that connection. Um, but again, I'm not trying to prove logically that these things are true. Second, we all break that moral law. We know this to be true, that we've done wrong, right? Who hasn't done wrong? We've sinned, we've violated the moral law. We all admit that and we know that. Third, that this puts us at odds with the moral lawgiver. okay? So now, today, if you've accepted these premises to be true, now we're gonna talk about what do we do about it? <laughs> More importantly, the better question is, what does God do about it? And in that question, we find the most compelling aspect of the gospel story. Last week was a bummer. This week is, should be the most like joy-producing, uh, peace, peaceful. It emphasizes love and mercy and God's grace and compassion and kindness. Like, this is the good stuff, right? This is the heart of the gospel story, and it is so compelling, and it is so beautiful. It's just amazing. But before we do that, what I want to do in this campaign with pretty much every topic is kind of walk through what are some of the alternative options. So in order to make the gospel look so appealing and so compelling, we have to ask, like, okay, so if I don't accept the gospel, like, what are my other options here? And this is where the gospel just shines. It's because every other story, it stinks. Like, they're trash in comparison to the story of the gospel. They don't even come close to the glory of the gospel. So what we're going to do is start with looking at two of them. One is hedonism as an alternative approach. And what I mean by hedonism, it's a big philosophical, ethical term. It just means pursuit of pleasure and avoidance of pain is the ultimate good. It's like The idea is like, all right, we've all violated the moral law, so I'm just going to go nuts. <laughs> right? Like, what's the point? Uh, we all mess up, so go for it. Go hog wild. The idea is just like satisfy all of your carnal desires. Uh, we do this through things like sexuality. We do this through selfish ambition where we just strive to get what we want. Uh, through greed, through addictions, substances. It makes me feel good. So I'm just going to keep using and abusing that substance. That's hedonism. And Jesus tells this one story in Luke chapter 15. This is a parable. It's a story. It's not like real people that Jesus is describing, but this story appeals so truthfully to all of our experiences. And in this story, he's going to reveal two of the alternative approaches and where they lead. Okay. The first one is this little hedonist. The story is often called the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, but really, it's a parable of both the prodigal son and the older son. Uh, we tend to emphasize, I think, the prodigal son because for religious folks, uh, that doesn't hit home quite as much <laughs> as the older brother. Uh, for religious folks, we see the older brother in ourselves, so we're like, oh, let's de-emphasize that. When in reality, Jesus tells this parable primarily, I think, directed at the religious folks, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Because if we were to rewind a couple of verses into chapter 15, 1 and 2, we read that the tax collectors and sinners, they were all gathering around Jesus. They couldn't get enough of him. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're muttering to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? They're like, wait, what? Like, he shouldn't be hanging out with sinners. They're super self-righteous. And so Jesus tells three stories, and this is one of them. And the younger son in this story, he's 
comparable to the tax collectors and sinners. The older son in this story, he's comparable to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And what Jesus is going to reveal in this story is that both of them have missed the gospel. Both ways miss Jesus. And they lead to very similar places in life. And again, this is a story that we've experienced or we've watched others experience and we know this to be true. So Jesus tells this story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So what he's saying is, I wish you were dead. Dad, I want my inheritance now. Um, He would have gotten a third of everything that his father had because he was the younger son. And the amazing thing is that the father does. The father divided his property between them. So he gives him a third of his wealth. It's wild. And he probably knows his son. He knows what his son's going to do, right? Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living, hedonism. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. So he's broke, and then a famine hits, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Uh, Saying this in a Jewish culture, yuck, right? Pigs, like even in our culture, we're like, pigs are gross. We drive by Wilson's farm, we're like, that smells, right? I used to live downwind of that farm. It really smells, okay? And we were a good distance off. For a Jewish person hearing this, it's like double yuck because pigs are unclean in their culture not kosher. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. Okay, so not only is he feeding pigs, but he's like, I'm so hungry, I would eat what they're eating. If you've seen pig slop, gross, right? Come on, man. But no one gave him anything. Okay, so if you've ever, like, perhaps you've had a rebellious phase in life, perhaps you're in this phase right now where you're living this hedonistic lifestyle, you're just pursuing pleasure at all costs as the ultimate good. You're like, well, if it feels good, do it. Like, this is where it leads, Some of you have gone down that road far enough to know that this is the end of it. It's lonely. He's isolated. Nobody will give him anything to eat. And at some point, you'll realize what I'm pursuing in drug addictions, in sex, in whatever else you're pursuing, it starts to look like pig slop to you. It's like Gollum in the ring, and it's all he can think about. It's all he desires. When, from our perspective, we're viewing this, we're seeing like, man, it's destroying you. Why do you want this? It's leaving you isolated and alone. Why do you keep pursuing it? It's appealing to something in our nature that we just crave it, we desire it. And it's pig slop. And it will leave you isolated with nothing. This dude hits rock bottom. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice, as we talked about last week, honest self-examination leads to confession and repentance. This young man has confessed and repented to his father. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father, he has none of it. 
Father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. He restores him to his status as his son. He said, no, no. He even gives him more wealth. <laughs> Unbelievable. You just squandered a third of everything that I own. You can do the quick calculations in your head. That's a lot for many of us, right? Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Golly. He just welcomes him, and welcomes him back into his family after that great offense, after saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, and taking a third of everything that he had and wasting it. <clears throat> Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. The idea is party. Like, let's have a party. For the son of mine, notice the language here, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Before we go on to the next one, I love what, put my notes back here on this, so I got to go back to it. I love what John Piper says about this. He calls it Christian hedonism. <laughs> what he's getting at is this return to the truth that we tend to pursue pleasure outside of God. But, and even in the Christian life, we tend to think of these desires and pleasure, desire for pleasure and these strong longings that we have as being the problem and saying like, oh, we have to resist these things and push against them. And we make the Christian life to be a chore instead of a joy. But what Piper does is he flips it on his head and he says, no, it's actually Christian hedonism is like a good thing. And what he's saying is because in God, there is fullness of joy. He satisfies all of our deepest longings that we have. So far from the Christian life being an old curmudgeon-like experience, it's joyful. It's loving. It's peaceful. Those are the fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit produces in us, right? So instead of thinking of it as this chore, this obligation, this terrible restriction on our freedom that we can't pursue the pleasures that we want, no, no, no. In Christ we find the true fulfillment and satisfaction of our greatest desires and longings. His famous line, Piper's famous line, is God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So as we grow in being more satisfied in our deepest longings in God, we find all of our desires truly met. He quotes Lewis, who says in The Weight of Glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. So our desires aren't the problem. We're just pursuing fulfillment of them in the wrong places. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud piles in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says we're far too easily placed. <laughs> so in Christ, these deepest longings and desires that we have are satisfied. And this hedonistic approach to life of pursuing satisfaction and fulfilling our desires outside of God and in just achieving what we think will satisfy these carnal cravings, he says, is like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he doesn't understand that the sea is available. <laughs> he doesn't know what the sea is. Sitting on a beach and finding true joy and peace there. So the second one, second alternative approach to 
The realization that our sin has put us at odds with God is self-righteousness. This is basically every religious approach outside of Christianity. It's we're at odds with the gods in the only way, or God, and the only way for us to be made right with this God is for us to be perfect and to offer sacrifices as best we can. And so we see that in the story of the older son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Remember, Jesus is telling this story. Uh, The younger son appeals to the tax collectors and the sinners, and the older son relates to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. There's a party happening. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. Notice this. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So while this party is happening, this older son, he's angry and he's isolated. He's comparing himself to his brother. How his brother got all this stuff and he doesn't get anything, which we're going to see in his comments in a moment. But notice how it kind of leads to the same place. Isolation. Sin always isolates, right? It leads us away from the joy and the presence of God. And this older son is angry. You're like, I know a lot of religious folks who are angry. Yes, because they're missing the way of Jesus. If more and more anger is being produced in you, you're missing the way of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is love, joy, peace. He refuses to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. (laughs) See how... How angry this guy is. All these years I have been slaving for you. Okay, He's going to over-exaggerate his righteousness and never disobeyed your orders. Of course you have, right? You went through junior high. Like We know, dude, you've disobeyed your dad. <clears throat> so he overemphasizes his self-righteousness to a level that's completely untrue. And this is what self-righteousness, when you're viewing life through that perspective, this is what you always do. You think you're better than everybody else, and you overemphasize your own self-righteousness. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Again, probably not true. He has overemphasized his own self-righteousness, and he has de-emphasized the blessing of the Father. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Again, comparison. Let him to be isolated, alone, and angry. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. (laughs) Okay, so notice where hedonism leads to being alone, Addicted, wanting more and more pig slop, but not having enough. Notice where self-righteousness leads, anger, isolation. There's a party happening, and you don't want to be a part of it. You're de-emphasizing the blessings of God because you think you've achieved it all yourself. One of the greatest lies that we tell ourselves and that the enemy tells us is when we come to this realization of our sin 
that we violated the moral law and that puts us at odds with God, the greatest law, one of the greatest lies is that we need to think about ourselves more. But instead, what we ought to do is to direct our attention to God. And so that's what we're going to do next. Instead of thinking about ourselves, let's put our eyes on God and see in this story what the Father does in response to the sins of both the older brother and the younger brother. Problem is, with those two other views, they're too focused on the self. So let's focus on God. The story of the father represents God. When the younger son is still a long ways off, his father saw him, meaning his father, his attention is on him. He's turned his face towards him. He sees him and is filled with compassion for him. So instead of anger and resentment and saying, no, you blew it. You told me you wished I was dead. (laughs) Go lie in the pig slop that you made. (laughs) Instead of that, no, he's filled with compassion for him. This is the heart of the father. That in spite of how far people have run away from God into this pursuit of self-pleasure and hedonism, when we turn to God and repent and confess our sin to him, he's not filled with anger and resentment towards us. No, he's filled with compassion and love. He ran to his son, it says. In this culture, a dignified older gentleman wouldn't run because he risked exposing himself. He would never do that. But this father doesn't care because it's his son. (laughs) He loves him, and he just wants to embrace him, threw his arm around him, and he kissed him. He welcomes him back into the family, restores his sonship, and even gives him more of his inheritance. And then the older son, again, looking at the father and what the father does, his father went out and pleaded with him. The son is outside. There's a party going on, and he won't come in because he's bitter. He's angry. He refuses to go in. So the father goes out to him. Instead of the father saying, no, 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 like, <laughs> you come to me. This is the image of Jesus coming to humanity to save and redeem us. He goes out and he pleads with him. My son, he says. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. He needs to redirect his son to stop thinking about all the righteous deeds and the good things that he has done. No, no, no. That is not why I love you. That is not why you are my son. No, you are just my son. You are my child. So stop thinking about all that stuff that you do, the righteous deeds that you think are making me love you. Stop. You're my son. You're always with me, and everything that I have is yours. Think about that. The father saying that. Everything that I have is yours. So we have to keep our eyes on the father. And Jesus tells that beautiful story of the father's love and compassion and how when we return to him and how we repent, which the younger son does, but the older son is still living in self-righteousness, which I think is more dangerous. It's more dangerous for us to miss the way of Jesus in self-righteousness than even in hedonism and pursuit of pleasure. So Jesus tells that in story form, which appeals to so many of us, and I love how Jesus tells that. The Apostle Paul here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, he just gives us the theological (laughs) statements of what's happening here. 
He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's the bad news that we talked about last week, so I'm just breezing right through it. But, so transition again. So just like the younger son, when he realized that in the father's house, there's, there's plenty. Like, I, there's food there, even for the servants. So why don't I just go back to the father? That transitional moment. But because of his great love for us, Paul says, God, who is rich in mercy. So notice how he doesn't keep the attention on humanity. No, now the attention goes back to God. And look at what God does. Look at how God has responded to the terrible plight of humanity. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Why did he do this? He just loved us. And he's merciful. That's his character. That's who he is. He's made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. We were dead in our sins. And because of what God has done in Christ, he has made us alive. In the previous chapter, in chapter 1, Paul's talking about how Christ is the exalted one, how Christ has risen from the dead. And now, here in Ephesians 2, he's describing how we, as Christians, when we believe in him, we get to participate in this new life with Christ. Then he pauses, and as an aside, he goes, it is by grace you have been saved. Don't miss this. This is so important. This is so at the heart of the gospel because all of us are so prone to self-righteousness and to, to trying to appease God by our own righteous deeds. Nope, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that, why did he do that? In the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Just so that for the rest of time, we're going to go look at this story and say, wow, God's grace is incomparable. It is so rich. It is so deep. We will never reach the bottom of it. God is so gracious. And we see God's grace fully on display in his kindness expressed to us in Christ that while we were dead, he raised us up with Christ and made us alive with him. He says it again here. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's the grace of God displayed on the cross, taking our sin upon himself and dying in our place that we applies to us when we believe in it, when we accept this gift of grace through faith. It's not by more and more self-righteousness and more and more of a desire to, to try to appease God and be good enough. No, it's through faith. And it's not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Is it clear yet? <laughs> it's by grace. It's a gift. It's not something that you earn. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We'll tackle this theme in a few weeks, that we are new creations in Christ, and that because of what Christ has done through the gift of the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us, we're created new in Christ to do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Band, you guys can come and get set up. Big idea, God responds to the sin of his people with grace, love, and mercy, he makes us alive when we were dead. He finds us when we were lost. 
So instead of keeping our attention on us and what we can do to be made right with God yet again, instead now let's keep our direction, uh, direct our attention to God. And let's focus on God and what he has done to save us, to redeem us when we were dead in our sins. Again, my whole, my prayer for us is that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us that the way of Jesus is just so great. That if you're living a life of hedonism, pursuing pleasure as the greatest good, then why not? I've already messed up. I've already broken the law. Why not just keep pursuing pleasure and doing whatever I want? Then you would see that that is not the way to live. That is not the best way to be. If you're living a life of self-righteousness, that if you're viewing your own righteous deeds, your own actions as what is making you right with God, again, you're outside the party. <laughs> the party's happening in there. And you've hardened your heart and you're angry with all the other people who get to participate in it instead of softening your heart. Instead of finding the grace and mercy of God that has saved and redeemed you just as it has those who have lived a life of pursuit of pleasure of hedonism outside of the way of God. Both leave us lonely. Both leave us isolated. Both leave us outside of the rich, abundant life that Christ has for us. So Jesus, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be speaking, that you would be guiding us into the truth of your word, that, Lord, it is in the gospel that we have peace with you, that it's not through self-righteousness, that, Lord, there is salvation, there is grace, there is mercy available, even when we have run so far from you, even when we have indulged in a life of sin, of pleasure that has taken us so far from you, God, that we can return to your home and find in you compassion, grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness. Lord, what a beautiful story. The gospel is so good. Jesus, you are so good. And we thank you for the salvation that you have made available. And so, Lord, as we reflect, reflected last week on our sinfulness, Lord, when we repent and confess our sin, this is how you respond. Lord, we thank you for your love and your mercy and salvation. We appreciate it. We cherish it. Your story is just irresistible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we apply this text, the big idea that we've been talking about today, Again, my prayer, my prayer for all of us is that we would see in the gospel that this is the best story, that all of these other paths, all of these other ways of living in light of the truth and the reality that we all kind of intrinsically know that there is a moral law that we violated it and that puts us at odds with the moral lawgiver. that all of these other approaches pale in comparison to the gospel message. That if you've lived this hedonistic lifestyle in pursuit of pleasure, that like the younger son, you would come to the realization, perhaps you have, and you would come to the realization that I'm just desiring pig slop. 
This pursuit of pleasure just leads to more and more isolation, more and more pain. And you would turn your attention from yourself, your desires, the things that you're pursuing, and you would turn them to God. And recognize that in Jesus, he satisfies all of your deepest longings. All those other things, they don't, they don't satisfy. You'll keep wanting more and more, and you'll never be satisfied. We know this to be true from the stories of countless people that we've heard. We know this to be true from our experiences of sin, that when we get it, we just desire more. And it's only in Jesus that we find true peace, true satisfaction, true rest for our souls. So I want you to see that pursuit of that, it's garbage. <laughs> so Christian, if you believe this, you believe in Jesus, don't look at these other things, these desires, these passions, these things that we long for, and those who are living in that way, don't look at those and think, gosh, I just wish I could be free to desire those and to go pursue those. That way of life is empty. That stinks. It's trash. You're desiring pig slop when you have the gospel, when you have Jesus. You have abundant provision with the Father. And alternatively, if you're a religious person, religious people are more prone to this, non-religious people do the same. You're pursuing acceptance through self-righteousness, and you have this arbitrary standard scale in your head that says, if only I'm good enough or I'm better than so-and-so, then I'll be right with God. That's just as destructive for your soul. It still leaves you outside of the party, like the older brother, lonely, angry, bitter. And if you're finding Christians, if you're finding just a growth in bitterness and anger and isolation growing in your soul, that's not the abundant life that God has for you. In the gospel, there is growth in love, joy, and peace with God and with others. And it comes when you accept that Christ Christ has redeemed you. Christ has set you free. Your righteousness is only in Christ, that it's not in you being better than so-and-so or whatever arbitrary standard you've created in your mind. As Christians, we are pulled to that like tractor beams. That self-righteousness, it's not it. It's only in acceptance and living in the freedom of the gospel that Jesus has set us free in the cross. Two quick passages from the words of Jesus that are so powerful on this. Jesus is so great. Why would we pursue life in another when we can have Jesus? These other ways, they just pale in comparison. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We talked about this last week and how it does us no good to deny the truth and to live in a delusion state. In the truth, there is freedom. But if we keep reading, we see exactly what Jesus was talking about is what we're talking about today. They answered him, his audience, who said, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? 
Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Even if you have the law and Abraham's descendants, you followed the law as best you can, like you still come short. You've still come up short of the standard of perfect holiness. So you're a slave then to your sin and the consequences of your sin, which is death and separation from God. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So in Jesus, when we accept him, when we believe in him, put all of our faith and trust in him, we have freedom from sin and the consequences of our sin. We have eternal life. We have fullness of joy now. That's pretty awesome. That's a great story. Well, how could we not want this to be true? Why do we want to keep coming back to self-righteousness and trying to earn it for myself? That stinks. That's garbage. That way of life is no fun. Turns you into an old curmudgeon who just sits outside and is angry at everybody else who's enjoying the freedom in the party. Why do we keep coming back to just indulging in sin when we have freedom in Jesus? Then in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says this as well. He says, come to me, not just to this teaching, not just to this thing, this anything else. Come to me. My prayer is that this, you would hear this from Jesus, as he said in scripture. You who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. In the gospel, there is true rest. You're not trying to earn your salvation. You're not trying to earn your freedom. That's a heavy burden that you can't bear. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When we come to Jesus and we experience this relationship with him, there's genuine true rest for your souls. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, why would we turn to another? Why would we turn to ourselves? Why keep our eyes on ourselves when we have Jesus? He's so good. Lord, Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for taking our sin upon yourself. We thank you for this amazing story, this true story that we are a part of and that we get to participate with you in the fullness of life that Jesus, you have achieved by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. So Jesus, we confess, forgive us for constantly pursuing satisfaction in anyone or anything else gratifying our sinful desires. We confess, Lord, that we're so prone to self-righteousness, to pursuing right standing with you by our own actions. It's only through you, Jesus. And so we love and we cherish and we appreciate you. And Lord, would you just draw us closer to you to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.